there is so much comfort. There is so much hope when you look around and you just see how ugly the world is and you are so desperate for Christ to return. Consider the fact that Christ will soon be here. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to the concluding part eight of Abiding in the Last Hour from 1 John with Pastor Paul Twiss. If you're a Christian, how often do you think about Christ's return? As Pastor takes us today to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we can be joyful reading these closing promises. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Like whom? John is talking about Christ, our Savior and Lord. Here's part eight of Abiding in the Last Hour. The first expectation, as children of God, you will only ever experience the love of the Father. Second expectation, as children of God, you will not experience the love of the world. When John says the reason the world does not know us, he's not talking simply about the fact that the world doesn't comprehend us. He's not talking about the fact that the world looks in at us and can't quite match up the data. We don't make sense to the world. That's true, but John is saying so much more than that. The idea of knowledge in 1 John, and actually pretty much throughout the whole of the Bible, is relational. John uses this verb here to know throughout this letter in a relational sense. So think back to passages where John says, by this we know that you have come to know him. By this we know that you you walk in the light. We, We come to know in a relational sense. Never just meaning that you have assented to some kind of facts and figures, but that you've been brought into a relationship with God. And he uses the same verb here. And that relational aspect is in view. John is saying, not simply the world doesn't understand you. The world has absolutely no sense of relationship with you. The world has absolutely zero sense of kinship with the church. The world doesn't understand us and the world has no desire to understand us because the world has no relationship with us. And quite honestly, the church would fare far better if we came to terms with this reality. All too often, we want it to be a different way around. We want there to be some affinity from the world towards us. And John says, they want nothing to do with us. They want no part with us because they don't know us, they don't understand us, and they have no sense of relationship with us. Now, it's important to understand specifically in our context what that lack of knowledge looks like. And more than that, the way in which it might play out over the course of the next 10 or 20 years. America was a country that was founded as an experiment in liberalism. Liberalism in its truest sense, as a a wonderful thing, and the, the country has flourished that experiment has worked for the best part of its history. 
central to the ideals upon which this country was founded are the freedom of religion and then closely connected the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly, the freedom for people to assemble together. And those three freedoms have remained intact for the best part of this nation's history. And that is one reason why the church historically has flourished in America, because the country has held on to the notion of freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And in fact, it wasn't that long ago that arguably the high watermark of this triad of freedoms was affirmed. In 1993, the Freedom of Religion Restoration Act was signed, and there were only three senators that voted against it. So as, as little as 25 years ago, the principles that are right there at the center of the, the ideal upon which this country was founded were being affirmed and kept intact. And this is good news for the church. Now, what you have to realize is that over the course of the last 25 years, all three of those ideals have been under attack. And all three of those ideals are slowly ebbing away. How is that happening? Os Guinness, the Christian apologist, helpfully summarizes them according to three categories. He says there are the reducers. There have been people over the last 25 years who have sought to change freedom of religion to merely freedom of worship. And the two are very different. Freedom of religion would entail and encompass a freedom to articulate the gospel in the public sphere. Freedom of worship simply says we can gather together and worship as long as it's a very privatized affair. And there has been a gradual shift towards that. Not only the reducers, but a second group would be the removers, those who have sought to make freedom of religion synonymous with freedom from religion. 9-11 did a lot to act as a catalyst in this. After 9-11, there was a, a view of religion that it is inherently dangerous. And so there was this steady slip from freedom of religion to, towards freedom from religion. And then thirdly, and perhaps worst of all, there are those who seek to rebrand, who seek to make freedom of religion thought of essentially as bigotry and hatred, which means now, if you seek to articulate a biblical conviction in the public sphere, you could well expect to be labeled as a bigot and for your comments to be labeled as hate speech. That is the movement that we've seen within the course of just one generation. The country has enjoyed true freedom of religion coupled with freedom of speech and assembly for the best part of its history. And within the scope of one generation, that is quickly slipping away. And we need to care about this. Too many Christians keep their heads in the sand with issues such as these, believing that they really only affect the political realm. Listen, culture drives politics, and it is not the other way around. The fact that these issues are being discussed in the political realm today means they have already been discussed in the cultural social realm. It means that it's going to affect your home and the local church 
far more readily than it affects anybody in the White House. And what it also means is that looking forward, we have to come to terms with the fact that our children who will grow up in this world will most likely have far less freedom to articulate the gospel outside of the church, to assemble as Christians together in the church, and to articulate any sense of biblical conviction in the public sphere. There will be restraints on the future of the church in a way that we have not known them up until this stage. Now, I am not in any way seeking to alarm. This is the state of play today. But at the same time, we have to remember this is nothing new. Read the second half of verse 1 again. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Though the landscape may be particular for us and specific, and I do think there's a responsibility on us to try and understand it and to figure out how, as a church, we move forward and still continue to flourish in society, proclaiming the gospel, at the same time, there's nothing new. Read the gospel accounts afresh and see how early on the horizon the theme of opposition arose. Read the Gospels afresh and see just how early on in the narrative there are those that are seeking to close the mouth of Jesus. They don't like his message. Read the book of Acts and see how the backdrop to the Gospel going out to the ends of the earth is the backdrop of oppression. The world does not know us and the world doesn't like us. The world doesn't like the message we have. There is nothing in the world that seeks to relate themselves to us. And the church would do well to come to terms with this. We must set our expectations. As a Christian bought with the blood of Christ, you will only ever experience the adoptive love of the Father. And as a Christian, you will not experience the love of the world. I know this is not a comforting truth to think about, but it is so necessary if we are to fight the fight of faith until the end. Earlier this year, I agreed to running a half marathon, and I agreed to running it the day before I was scheduled to preach twice, once in the morning and once in the evening. It was a foolish decision. So I show up and I start running the 13 miles. And within the first few miles, I am talking to somebody that I'm running with. And I should say I've done zero preparation for this, another foolish decision on my part. So I'm struggling at about mile one. <laughs> and then my friend that i am just met and I'm chatting to, he says to me, oh yeah, I've done this course before. And just around the corner, we hit a hill that will go on for about two miles. I did not want to know that truth right then. Was it comforting? By no means. Was it helpful? Yes, it was. Is it necessary to set our expectations? Yes, it is. The more we set our expectations and we craft out a biblical worldview in our own hearts, the more we are positioning ourselves in a place of success, ready to fight and to run and to persevere until the return of Christ. That is the second expectation that John gives us. The third one is simply that we 
shall be made like Christ. As children of God, we shall be made like Christ. He says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Just wonderful, wonderful truth. The first question that I have when I read this is what is the connection between seeing Christ and becoming like him? Why is it that according to John's logic, he says it's when we see him that we become like him? I think it has to do with the way in which John uses the theology of light, which is so prevalent both in the gospel and in this letter. All the way through, he's been saying Christians walk in the light and those that are not in Christ walk in the darkness and stumble and they don't know where they're going. He wants us to walk in the light, which means in some kind of moral or ethical uprightness that is reflective of the new birth that has occurred inside of us. But what you need to remember is that in John's theology, it is also true that Jesus is the light. Jesus has said in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. And so there is this tight connection between Christ himself and the idea of light and our abiding. And so when John finally gets to this climactic point in his letter when he says, Christ will appear, it's as if he's saying the light's will go on. The light will shine fully in that day. We see him now by faith, then we will see him by sight. And we will not be hindered in our walking in the light in that day. We will walk in the fullness of light, which is to say we will walk a blameless walk and the inference is because we are like Christ. So this fits with John's theology as he sets forth that great day towards which we're all looking when Christ appears and we will see him. And though it is a familiar verse, we must take it to heart afresh. I would say this verse is the verse to which I retreat more than any other text in all of Scripture. I have thought and set my mind to this one concept perhaps more than any other truth that God gives us because in it there is so much comfort there is so much hope when you look around and you just see how ugly the world is and you are so desperate for Christ to return consider the fact that Christ will soon be here whether he returns tonight or a hundred years from now it is the last hour, and in the spectrum of eternity, he will very soon be here. And you will stand in front of Christ, and you will see his eyes. You will look into the eyes of Christ, and you will see the wounds on his hands. And you will believe upon the sufficiency of his death on the cross in a new way. I know that you believe right now that his work on the cross is enough for you. But when you see him in the flesh and you see the holes in his hands, we have scars that will go away when we receive our resurrection bodies. Christ's scars remain. Have you ever wondered why that is? In his resurrection body, he has holes in his hands. I think it is so that there will be a constant reminder in glory as we worship him of how it is that we got there. And you will look at him, your saviour, 
And in an instant, you will be changed and you will be made like him. There is so much sin that remains in you. There is so much sin that remains in you. Sin that drags each one of us down every day and causes us to fail Christ every day. And in those rare moments of spiritual clarity that the Lord gives us, you hate your sin and you hate the pride that remains in your heart and continues in so many ways to define the way in which you think and speak and act. And in those moments, rare as they are, your desire is that it would just be gone and you could just live a life that is without blemish. And John says, really soon, Christ will appear. And when he does, all that sin will be gone. And by inference, not just the sin in you, but all of the sin that is around you, all of the sin that is in this world will be gone when Christ returns. Isaiah 11 talks about when Christ returns and he will slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. There will be no more news stories that cause you to lament the state of this world. But you will rejoice when you see Christ because he will make you like him and he will transform this world. And I guarantee you that in that day there will be zero hindrance to your speech. You will enjoy a freedom of speech that you have not ever known. There will be nothing externally stopping you from praising the Lamb, and there will be nothing internally that hinders you from singing His praises. And there will be nothing in that day that hinders our assembly as God's people. Nothing externally and nothing internally, and we will gather around his throne and we will sing praises to the Lamb, and it will go on for eternity. And we must set our expectations. This is what it means to be found in Christ. And when you set your expectations and you have them correctly aligned with the Scriptures, as a child of God, you will only ever experience the love of the Father. As a child of God, you will not experience the love of the world. And as a child of God, very soon, you will be stood before Christ and you will be like Him. When they are your expectations, and that is the lens through which you look at this world, you are well positioned to abide. You are well positioned to obey. Amidst all of the things that would cause you to stumble, amidst all of the things that would cause you to take a step off the path, amidst all of the dangers that Christians really do face, you are positioned, well positioned, to abide until the last day, until his return. And that is why John brings his argument back full circle. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Can you see his logic as he stretches out to eternity future, referring, verse 3, most immediately to Christ's return? But theologically, I think it is true that as we also understand what it means to be in this world and as we understand what it means that Christ will return, so then we have this platform by which we can live a Christ-honoring life. 
If your expectations are not correctly set, you will struggle to walk a Christ-honoring life. John gives us the expectations and then he comes back to the idea of obedience and abiding specifically within the realm of, of purity and holiness. Everyone who has this hope, who has brought this truth into their heart, has reconciled it to their own minds, they will purify themselves as he is pure. I was talking with someone just this week about what I've learned studying through First John, and I said, you know, I think the biggest shift for me in my thinking and my understanding is that when John sets out to write a letter about assurance, how to give believers assurance, the way in which he does it is not primarily to answer the question, how can I know my sins are forgiven? which is so often how we come at the issue of assurance. The biggest shift in my thinking studying this book is to see that John seeks to minister to these believers around the issue of assurance by telling them what it means to be found in Christ. Part of that most certainly is a forgiveness of sins, but it's a much bigger package. If you want to live an assured life, which is a life of joy, which is a life of abiding until the end. You need to know what it means to be found in Christ. You need to know what it means to be a Christian. And that is what John is concerned with giving us in this letter and in these verses. He is setting our expectations as the children of God. May we continue to search out the glories of the gospel May we continue to grow in our knowledge of what it is Christ has done for us and who we now are because we're in union with him, knowing that that knowledge will only ever increase our faith, which gives rise to assurance, which gives rise to joy, and it will position us in a place where we can abide and fight the good fight until the return of Christ. Pray with me now to close. Our Father, we are grateful for the book of 1 John, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're grateful that it is clear what our expectation should be in this life. We have been adopted. We are your children. And whatever our earthly experience, the Bible tells us you are showering your fatherly love upon us right now. We are children of God and the world does not know us. The world has no part with us and we must not expect to be loved by the world. We are children of God and really soon we will see Christ. We'll stand before our Savior and we will be made like him because we shall see him as he is. Please, by your spirit, minister these truths to our hearts so that we would fight, we would abide, we would purify ourselves as he is pure. May we live lives of obedience because our expectations are correctly set. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Christians must live with the expectations Scripture has given them. 
We know the days are coming when this world will cease being our dwelling place. If Christ should come before we die or we're taken to him in death, let's live our lives expecting a homecoming very soon. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a home church, come worship with us. Good Friday is this week, and you're invited to a special service at 6 p.m. And then on Easter Sunday at 10.30 a.m., the church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Listen tomorrow for part one in our new series, Making Sense of the Ascension with Pastor Paul Twist. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.